This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson. And if you were looking for the Wealth and Law Podcast, you're in the right place. If not, welcome anyways. I wanted to talk today about what happens sometimes when people do their estate planning, quote unquote, and we'll get into that, uh, online. And it's not that I'm opposed to online services, as the dog is uh, making an appearance here. Um, certainly not opposed to it. And there's a there's a longer, broader discussion about the fact that very large percentages of the country do not have any sort of estate planning. I think that's a very bad thing. Um, people need estate planning. They need access to estate planning. In, in many cases, price is an issue. Uh, frankly, a lot of estate planning, in my opinion, should be available for free. And in many places, it is available for free. So, for example... In my home state of Arizona, the Secretary of State's office produces uh, healthcare documents. They're they're just forms for like healthcare powers of attorney, living wills, those sorts of documents. Those are available for free through the Secretary of State. I think that's a good thing. And so access to those sorts of services are good. And there's an entire industry that purports to do quote unquote planning uh, online, uh, outfits sort of like your legal zooms and trust and will, uh, to, to a certain degree, e-legacy and, and other organizations that are, um, providing services online where you, you basically work through an interface. The, the fees usually are, are significantly discounted from the fees that you'd get charged by an attorney. And there's reasons for that, but I can get into, but, uh, that all is not necessarily a bad thing. And I think there's, there's a place in the world for those kinds of services where I get a little bit nervous is the way that they are marketed to the masses, because in many instances, um, they're being marketed in a way that is trying to kind of jump on the coattails of attorney of attorneys who are practicing and make people feel like they are getting the same services that they would get from an attorney who only does estate planning or significantly does estate planning in their practice as they're going to get through these online sites. And, and that's simply untrue, but the way that it's marketed wouldn't leave you with that impression. So for example, a lot of these organizations will market online that they they help you do quote estate planning or that you can do your estate planning through them that you can plan your legacy that you can arrange your affairs uh, that you'll be using services with expertise and experts and things of that nature and it's really not true first of all and and that's really something that i think is troubling because you're not getting planning. Planning would involve legal advice, and you're not getting that. <clears throat> you're basically de- 
DIYing it with a little bit of help in the same way that TurboTax is really not doing accounting services for you. They're doing document, they're doing tax return preparation services. And yes, you can ask somebody a question, but they don't represent you. And that person uh, may not necessarily be the the professional that you need based on your facts and circumstances. And there are plentiful facts and circumstances that some person who works for one of these organizations, even if they have access to, say, an attorney or paralegal, would not know the answer to. It would not be able to give you the right answer without a lot more context than you're going to be able to get through these sorts of arrangements. And so I think for the uninitiated or the uninformed, um, they would be led to believe that what they're getting are services equivalent to the services that they would get from an attorney. And that is false. And in addition to that, the, the frequent thing that I see is that these services will then market themselves to other providers and they will, they will claim to be able to be an add-on to services for other, other service providers like accountants and even more significantly financial advisors. And I 100% sympathize with and empathize with the desire for financial advisors to do two things. Number one, to expand their businesses so that they have multiple lines of business that they can offer to their clients and to be able to capture some of the fees that they are referring out the door that they maybe feel like are not being reciprocated by estate planning attorneys. So I get that. And a feeling like they have enough expertise to be able to do estate planning or that they understand estate planning enough to be able to basically do it and therefore offer it to their clients. And so they they are talked into offering these sorts of online services to their clients as quote unquote estate planning. Of course, there's a couple of issues with that. First of all, most of the people who are offering these services are about as ignorant to the fact that they do not equivalent, they are not equivalents to the legal services that you would get from a lawyer who's specialized in or has expertise in estate planning. Uh, they're not even close. And the second is that these, these professionals oftentimes do not have enough depth of understanding of the process, let alone the law, to be able to make recommendations to clients competently and confidently that they're going to be fully taken care of through these online services, which they are not, is is the reality. I think the online services are a bit of a band-aid. And when it comes to financial advisors, particularly ones who are primarily working with well-to-do individuals, the difference between a few thousand dollars to engage a lawyer and the, say, a couple hundred dollars to pay through the online services, the gap between those two prices is not like a coupon where you're just getting a good deal for equivalent items in different stores. It's the gap is, as the dog continues to make an appearance here, uh, the, the gap is in the expertise and the wisdom and the experience and the understanding that you're going to get from the attorney who's a specialist in this area. It's a very complex area. And I know that it's very tempting to believe that it's not because it's either you or, or someone you know personally and their things are 
quote unquote, simple, which I get told all the time. But that's simply not true. And it's not true even from the perspective of looking at someone's balance sheet. Okay. And oftentimes the simplicity is based on the balance sheet when I talk to financial advisors. But to do the planning competently, you don't just have to have an understanding of the balance sheet. You also have to have an understanding of the the family dynamics, the different roles that the law imposes under different circumstances, because unfortunately we don't have just one role for one circumstance. The way that different assets are legally structured and managed, the way that they interact with one another, the way that they interact with the various fiduciary roles that exist, the tax consequences that flow to the owner and the beneficiaries of all of those assets, an understanding of the trust laws, if there are trust laws, which which if they exist are hundreds of pages long, oftentimes, an understanding of the probate laws in whatever jurisdiction um, these assets are located, which themselves could be well over 100 pages long, an understanding of the guardianship or guardian of a person laws that could be applicable if the planning fails, ways that the planning could, could fail that lead you into the need for a guardianship and understanding that process, how to appoint and nominate people to take over in that process, an understanding of the conservatorship or guardianship of the estate laws, how that process works, who can be appointed, how to nominate people in in a conservatorship or guardianship of the estate, should that be necessary, when it is necessary, traps for the unwary that could kick you into one of those proceedings un- unknowingly or unintentionally. And this is just a, a sort of scratching of the surface of some of the issues that an attorney who really focuses on this area of law will understand and that's the expertise that they bring and the wisdom that they bring to the equation. So that is the reason for the gap between the pricing of these online services and the services that the attorney is giving. No different from the difference between looking something up on web in MD and then consulting with a doctor who's a specialist in the issue that you have for your health. Of course, it's going to cost more to go to the doctor. It's not going to be free. But the reason it's not free is because you're compensating for knowledge and wisdom and understanding and perspective. And that's what estate planning lawyers provide. So it's not that these online services themselves are necessarily bad. It's that the way that they're being advertised is, in my opinion, 100% deceptive and intentionally so. They're, They're advertised as if they are legal services, which they are not. And people who maybe wouldn't know the difference, and sometimes people who should know the difference because they're the professionals who are recommending people use these services, could be led to believe that what they're getting is the equivalent of legal services, uh, but they're not. And I've been around this issue for a long time, so this is not some brand new thing, hot take, okay? So as just a little bit of context here for some of these comments, which, which again, I'm not trying to make them... Uh, negative for these services or for, for people doing, wanting to do some sort of DIY uh, estate planning for themselves. Of course, anybody's is, is free to do that for themselves. As I've been saying, I think wider access to the, the legal profession and to legal services is needed. There's a huge gap and that gap is largely driven by economics, which I think is a shame because we all live in this world that is that is subject to this tangled web 
of extremely complicated legal structures that you don't see and you can't touch, but they exist and they govern uh, what we're doing and how we conduct ourselves. But I've been around this issue for a very long time. Um, it's not new to me. So I have served on the executive council for my local state bar probate and trust section. So it's just lawyers who that's all they do. And these issues easily for 10 years have been swirling around in my state, which was one of the first states. Uh, there was a huge debate about whether to change the ethical rules to permit non-lawyers to own law firms. And so eventually uh, that won the day and we did change our rules to permit non-lawyers to own law firms. And there were a few, there were a few ideas sort of kicked around that, that sold this because the, sorry, the general ethical rule for anybody who doesn't know is that non-lawyers cannot own law firms. The policy reason for that historically has been that if non-lawyers own law firms, then it cuts against the, the duties that lawyers are held to that they are supposed to have for their clients. And it introduces outside parties who aren't held to the same duties and who might have purely profit-making motivations that the lawyers are not allowed to have. Yes, of course, lawyers are permitted to make money and to have businesses, but their, their primary duty is always to their clients, and they're a fiduciary to their client no matter what, whereas an ordinary business person is not a fiduciary to their clients. And so introducing an a, a ordinary business person into the ownership of a law firm where that person does not owe duties to the clients and the lawyer does has been viewed as a negative, has been viewed historically as something that would cut against the ethical obligations of lawyers and therefore was impermissible. And so there was a big debate about changing these rules in Arizona. One of the selling points for changing the rules here uh, was that it would grant more efficiencies in the system because investors could bring money that could create systems that could provide legal services for cheaper prices, okay? And then that would expand access to justice. I can only really speak for my area of practice, but I can say in the last few years since we've had it, I have seen exactly zero of that. Uh, I'm unaware of any significant offerings of cheap legal services through these sorts of organizations um, that are, are really meaningful. And instead, what, what you see largely are uh, wealth management firms or financial advisory firms tacked onto law firms to then provide estate planning through those firms. Well, those firms are not created to provide services to indigent people. They're, provide, they're there to provide services to people who have money. That's what financial advising is, basically. You're largely doing your practice for people, or your, not your practice, but your, uh, your profession for people who have money already not for people who don't have money and need the access to <clears throat> need the access to these services because they can't afford to pay a couple thousand dollars for a lawyer uh, to do competent estate planning for them. There was so I haven't seen, and that debate was raged and it was and it was hotly contested and I haven't seen the the fruits of of what was promised actually play out. I've seen the opposite. Uh, in my experience, there was another change that was made to our rules to permit 
legal document preparers that actually had had existed for a long time, which was largely uh, paraprofessionals who could pre- prepare certain legal documents. That was expanded a few years ago. That program, I think, is a very good one. That has uh, better success, I think, and more is more likely to be successful, um, and is a good entry point, I think, for um, people who need access to some legal services, and maybe those legal services can be provided by someone who isn't going to charge attorney rates, um, but who is going to be subject to ethical obligations and oversight by the state bar and or really the, the Supreme Court of the jurisdiction where you are. I think that has been for us a success, but there's a long way to go. Um, but the marketing, again, for these changes to services has not really matched up with with the reality on the ground of the way that it plays out. Not a big surprise to me, to be honest, but that's the way it's played out. The The second component that has happened historically here, and and not just in, in Arizona, but in many states, is that there was a big push for many years to enact statutes that would permit electronic wills. So traditionally, a will must be signed on paper. In most jurisdictions, it has to have at least one witness, in some places two witnesses, uh, in order to be valid. And so there was a big push to allow for electronic wills, wills that could be signed electronically, not on paper. There were many concerns among practitioners, not that this idea was bad, because of course, if you could do things in a simpler way, um, I think most practitioners are, are open to it. Most lawyers are open to that. That would be good. It would make their lives easier. Uh, where the concern comes up is not just that, but the way that those sorts of things can that could then be used to exploit vulnerable people and to get, say, an elderly, demented person to rewrite their will to give everything to the caregiver who is spending most of their time with the elderly person. And those sorts of outcomes already were happening under the traditional methods, so, you know, so to speak. Uh, so if you just, if you, re- and, and that was usually done by dragging the elderly person down to some random lawyer's office who uh, wasn't holding up their, their end of the, the grand public bargain here of, of standing in the way of these sorts of things, rewriting the will, adding in, say, the caregiver to get everything when the elderly person died, cutting out all the family. Um, that was already being done on paper wills. And the idea of then having electronic wills that could be signed just sitting in front of a computer that the elderly person might not even know how to use uh, so that the exploiter has an easier access to doing what they wanted to do, uh, that was that was scary to a lot of practitioners who are nervous about these issues and see these issues frequently because elder, uh, elder abuse and financial exploitation is, is pretty rampant. So our statute ended up being a little more complex. I really haven't seen people using it. I, I've, I've been in meetings where it's been surveyed among lawyers of who actually is doing these. Very few people have actually done electronic wills just because the burden of doing it is challenging because you have to put so many safeguards against the bad actors of the world. But those sorts of changes were driven not by the legal industry saying, hey, we, we have an issue here, but largely by private enterprises like the, the legal zooms of the world who wanted to be able to sell cheap wills easily online. Um, and the motivation for it and sort of the the infrastructure for it makes sense. We, we largely do things online. 
Um, that's the way that we transact business. All that makes sense. But they were tone deaf to the dangers of, of elderly people being exploited, which were large issues that the lawyers were, were raising and that they think are, are material. The, the thing that was also the case was that Nevada already had an electronic will statute and Arizona, like most states that have the Uniform Probate Code, which is almost all the states, already accepts wills that were validly done in another jurisdiction. So there was really nothing that would have prevented somebody from doing a Nevada electronic will and then bringing it to Arizona. It would have still been valid here. So we didn't really, the, the urgency for having a separate statute here just wasn't wasn't as high. But I, I think most of these outfits wanted to have assurance on the ground that when they were providing these online services that um, that it was going to be valid. But again, the motivation was a profit-making motivation and not really a public good motivation. And the motivation against it was really a public good motivation because of the the vulnerability of, of elderly people to financial exploitation, which again is rampant. I mean, it's, it's, it's very frequent and, and sadly so. So when I see organizations that are offering these services, marketing them as if they are quote unquote planning or legacies or getting your affairs in order by experts, etc., all of which is to lead people to believe that they're getting the equivalent service as if they had gone into a competent lawyer to do their estate planning. I'm a little agitated by that because I think it's deceptive. The other thing that is is also agitating is that lawyers under our ethical rules, and there's a most most jurisdictions follow to some degree the American Bar Association model rules of professional conduct, rule 7.1 requires lawyers in their advertising to be truthful. You can't be deceptive. You cannot lead someone to believe that you do something that you do not do. And yet these organizations that are offering these services that are sort of dressed up as legal services, in my opinion, are absolutely being deceptive in the way that they market these services to make them look like they are in fact legal services when they're not. And lawyers couldn't do that. And lawyers can't do that. And yet these services, because they exist outside of the ethical rules, are free to do it, and there, there seems to be no large uproar over those practices, even though, again, for a lawyer to do that would be unethical. You could get sanctioned or even disbarred if it was bad enough uh, as a lawyer for doing something like that. So I have, I have some hesitancy. Again, access to legal services um, for people who don't have the means to pay uh, is, is a big issue. It needs to be addressed. I think there are certain ways that we can do it that make sense. I don't think it requires telling people they're getting something that they're not in order to make a buck. And that's where I, I take a pretty firm stand on these issues. So just because you have a will does not always mean that you have a plan. You might have a will, you might have a document, but it may not actually be a plan. And if you're a practitioner who is pushing people into these services, telling people, telling them that they will have a plan when what they will have is a will, um, you and them are the fool and you shouldn't be. So now you're now you're aware. Don't do that. Let them know the truth that they're getting documents prepared. It is not the equivalent of getting planning or legal services. It is just document preparation. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with document preparation 
You just have to understand with open eyes, it does not come with the expertise and wisdom and experience and knowledge that goes behind actual estate planning with an actual lawyer. All right, that's it for today. As usual, thank you so much for joining me. That anybody would listen to me for any amount of time uh, is humbling because I know everybody is busy. I know I'm super busy. I don't have time to listen to a lot of podcasts. So uh, the fact that you've listened to this and got to this point, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to uh, continuing to, to uh, do it. See you next time. Hey, listeners, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw. I'll see you there.